and welcome to the Recapables Billions on the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, Deputy Editor of TheRinger.com. Let's discuss Billions Season 3, Episode 3, A Generation Too Late. Are we good? I don't know. Are we? Are you? Are you running all four downs, playing every play like it's your last? Is your mouth guard always in, chin strap always buckled? If that's you, we're good. Joining me today, now that he's finished picking up Chuck's third place squash trophies from Senior's apartment, <laughs> it's Ringer Editor-in-Chief, host of the Big Picture Podcast, our Wendy, Sean Fennessy. Wow. I'm just so, <laughs> so honored, and I feel so bad for all the people who are hoping to hear Bill Simmons' voice on the other end of this podcast, and well, they're not getting it, Mel. Sean. Let's explain quickly why why we're here together. Okay. Why are we here? This is fitting because on this week's Billions, we learn finally at long last how Axe and Wags met their fateful union. It took place on a golf course. Origin stories. Guess what? Masters weekend. And that is why the podfather, Bill Simmons, is not here. You are. We are reuniting to co-host this podcast one of the things we like to do at the top of this is some alternate titles, some alternate episode names. Do you have any? I have a like couple. With? Let's I have hear a couple. Let's hear them. Uh, the first one is Algo Fuck Yourself, uh, which for those of you who are algorithmically inclined will know that that is um, a big part of this episode, trying to understand what the hell Taylor and Wags are trying to accomplish inside this quant factory that they're building in Axis Stead. What, 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 you got another one? Um, I didn't come up with like witty puns mm -hmm. that's like all you I did. do this is I just write headlines I know I like to I like to study at the Sean Fennessey school of display yeah um I just I just have a couple like half sentences here Jock Jeffcoat attempts to pronounce Haftorah <laughs> this is yep. really my main takeaway yep. from this episode of television you'll have to be the, the representative of the tribe on this episode <laughs> indeed indeed uh at least Billy Bean got to be played by Brad Pitt <laughs> He had that before his name was dragged through the mud for 57 minutes on Billions. Tough, tough night for, for Billy Bean on Billions. Great night for Theo Epstein, though, as we'll get to. One of my alternates was uh, his shit don't work in the playoffs. There you go. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah. I was going to bring that up as well. Look at that. We're so in sync. We're locked. We're so in sync already. All right. Quickly, 42-second episode description. I have no idea why we do, why we do this in 42 seconds. I guess because time is money. You know, okay. that's what access taught do you us. Know, are you ready to do this? Because Bill, every week Bill sits you down and he's like, Mal, you ready? 42 second recap. Let's do this thing. And you're like, you're terrified. Yeah, and every week I think it's unfair. So guess what? I'm not going to put you through that. Great. I'm going to take this. Such a great co-host <laughs> and, and colleague. This is amazing. Go, Mal, 42 seconds. 42 seconds. Zach, start the clock. Neither Chuck nor Axe can focus on each other for a change because they're both too busy focusing on new targets. The attorney general, again, always bears repeating his name is Jock Jeffcoat. Incredible. For Chuck, Raul, Panea, Ira, et al. for Axe. Meanwhile, Taylor wants to bring on a quant but ultimately decides that Axe Capital is a place for Theo Epstein, not Billy Bean. Ah, so a certain type of quant. What an episode for our man, Brian Connerty. My word. Woo! Connerty realizes that Chuck is dirty and that Dake might be too. This is kind of like his moment of clarity. He can't turn away anymore. And crucially, Wendy has to hear about Mafi's butt sweat. <laughs> sure. Yes. There's a lot. There's there's a lot more here. I mean, there's just a lot about Ira that we can we can talk about. There is. So before we get to our awards, yep. we should probably go slightly deeper into the plot because this was episode two was a little. Not slow, but it was more about mood mm -hmm. and angst than about plot developments. And this episode was dense, loaded with developments for basically all of the main characters and a lot of the secondary ones as well, except for my man, Oren. We didn't get enough Oren time. Not a lot of Oren, not a lot of Lara, which we can also talk about. Thank the lords. Okay. <laughs> Thank the seven. Thank the old gods and the new. That's right. Let's start with Ira, because the episode opens with our man, Ira, Handsome, as always. Ben Shankman. Watching his precious few remaining pennies melt away one white truffle shaving at a time. I loved this scene. Did you do any math? I, I did. I think the, the, the takeaway was at $280. $280 worth of truffle shavings. Fantastic. On his 
soon-to-be fiancé's plate. The waiter tells them that it's $14 a truffle. A gram. A gram of A gram, truffle. yes. She, she gets 20. 20 grams. She broke the record. Incredible. I think she, I think she had the season high is how the waiter <laughs> described it. Uh, that was high-level Koppelman-Levine I live a, a, a wonderful dining lifestyle in New York, and so I know the specificities and the peccadillos around what it's like to eat in these places. And I think that they're eating in Kraft, which is a, the place that Ira took uh, Chuck in season two when they were going meant to go on a date together, a surprise kind of matchup date. And in that setting, I do believe that Shankman, Ira's, the Ira character, had a truffle martini. And so we know that Ira has a thing for truffles. So for him to watch this woman that he loves and cares about, ordering truffles is probably simultaneously... It's a trigger. ...orgasmic, but also, you know, upsetting. It's a Chuck trigger because after that moment that you're referencing, they had a conversation about the nature of of life and having to basically dig through the shit to mm-hmm. get to something mm-hmm. precious and what that represents. And then our man, Ira, this is like pre ice juice fiasco mm-hmm. when Ira and Chuck are still besties, sends Chuck a truffle. That's right. To his office. And there's that really revolting Paul Giamatti deep inhale moment when he <laughs> holds the truffle and just breathes in with every fiber of his being. And it's like you had to kind of pause the episode for a minute to like go take a quick shower before you could resume. I yeah. did, at least. Giamatti, one of the greats. Truly one of the greats. Let's hear a clip from this moment where Ira, a completely broken man who was about to propose marriage, instead tells his girlfriend, basically, here's all the reasons I'm not good enough for you anymore. With everything that's happened, leaving my partnership at the firm, the company going down, my entire savings gone. Anyway, I can't give you the wedding you deserve. And the honeymoon we discussed the life we planned. I can't tell you to quit your job. Uh, I can't even afford the ring I picked out for you. Now, if knowing all this, you want to go ahead? No. You're right. We should wait. Okay, good. This was a masterfully edited sequence because they gave you just a beat enough that we thought Ira was going to get a step, you know, going to going to going to get a burst in his heart because she was going to say yes. And then she says, no, amazing moment. Um, man, Ira, what a it, it, it better as a sad sack than as Chuck's slick, rich friend. Oh, so, yeah. so much better in this role. Great opening scene for, for an episode that I think had a had had a, a density that you talked about that the pacing was a little bit tough. This this was a great way to come in. And Ira's love life is the bookend of the episode as well. But crucially, we were not the only ones listening in on this conversation. Yeah. The Winkletech twins, as Bill named them. John and Timmy. <laughs> Imagine being in a restaurant and you're having a lovely evening with your partner. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't know what that's like. Okay. Delivery only for me. That's right. Okay. I'm in a restaurant and I'm having a lovely evening with, with my wife. And I turn to my left and there are two men uh-huh. not speaking, right. not looking at one another, not even really touching their food, though they did have plates in front of them. And, like, goblets of wine. Didn't they? Okay. <laughs> so not Healthy consuming. Pours. And also paying for a $500 meal at Kraft, apparently, merely to record a conversation between Ira and his fiance, so that he can be leveraged by Axe? That's the whole, that was the whole point? Yes. One of my takeaways is that if these guys are supposed to be, like, hall-level fixers mm-hmm. for Axe, right, they can get anything done. They got... A person deported because Axe wanted them to. These are high-level operatives. Terrible people. Don't look at the recording device that obviously. Good point. The dude just picks up his iPhone or whatever kind of phone it was. And we just, we see, I mean, it's for our benefit, obviously. I think he probably could have lifted it, it from, from left to right to, to, to show us the back of the phone. That would have been more effective given where the seats were positioned. But, you know, this is TV magic. Stealth, though. Yeah, that's true. But we quickly do learn why they're listening, why this is happening. Axe wants to bribe Ira to turn on Chuck. And hey, it works because two things. One, money. Two, pride. Revenge, right? Axe helps Ira remember that Chuck is 
garbage and is not worth protecting. He betrayed him. Was supposed to be best friends. Sold him out. Axe offers Ira $30 million for his, in essence, worthless ice juice shares, plus the diamond ring that he couldn't afford to get his fiance. Incredible flex. This was like a Neil Lane moment yeah, in The Bachelor. I wrote that in my and notes, it's, too. So good. Neil Lane comes to billions. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually really love this part, too, because— in a show that sometimes stretches the limits of plausibility, this felt very plausible. Like, the it, Chuck really underestimated how dirty he did Ira here. And Ira, of course, would be seeking some modicum of revenge if the right person came to him. And Axe is right there, right there with the 30 mil in hand. This is one of the brilliant things about the show is that Chuck and Axe are enemies, but they both have the same downfall, which is hubris. And their their greed and their quest for their, – their endless quest for power – Chuck's hubris is blinding him to what you're saying, this this very obvious reality. I mean, when Chuck at the beginning of this season, like, snuck up on Ira during his midnight snack or made a bullshit speech about egg creams when Ira just wanted to eat his meal, <laughs> Ira said to him, this is it for us. This is the last conversation we're ever going to have. If Chuck didn't leave that moment feeling insecure, that's on Chuck. And that's one of the reasons it's actually increasingly hard to root for him. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you. I find myself— shifting further and further into Axe's camp. You know, here's the thing, Mal. When you work with your friends, there's a lot of emotional (laughs) management that goes into that because you care about the people uniquely, Uh but also you understand them more clearly. It's almost as if I'm sending a message to you right now without saying anything. And yet you've never purchased an egg cream in front of me. (laughs) Not an egg cream guy, despite being from New York. Um, And it's interesting that Chuck because of this hubristic nature you're describing, just doesn't realize that he's really got to take care of Ira here. He's really got to find a way to pull him close. He's got to, there's got to be a carrot. There's got to be something that keeps him in the fold. And he, he just fucked that up. So many lessons. So many lessons. <laughs> Axe never just has one truffle shaver over a plate. He's always got something else yep. going on. And sure enough, he is going after Raul's police fund. We got a lot of exposition, of Raul exposition in this episode. The business, the (laughs) B-school line was seamlessly incorporated. We know that he and Axe have history. You know, Axe's attempt to keep Raul in the fold when things were going awry much earlier in the show's run was like one of the first times that we got to really see how Axe is so effective at what he does, Mm -hmm. how he brings people in and makes them feel like they're the only ones he has that kind of one-on-one relationship with. And so, you know, he, this guy was, he was, they were grilling together at one point right. in season two. You know, they, they actually have, whatever Axe is capable of, uh, of producing that is somewhat like a friendship with somebody he kind of has with it's Raul. Very, it's very activity-based too. In this episode, they're at the shooting range. That's right. And they play pool. They do. Axe plays a lot of pool. Yeah. Axe plays a lot of pool. He's a hustler. Truly. This is a a trio here, ultimately. It's not just about Axe and Raul. We've got Michael Panea, who we met earlier this season. Yep. Couldn't afford the car that he was looking at. Axe made him feel like shit about it. And Axe can always identify someone he can use as a pawn. This guy, hard on his luck, losing all of his fortune down to a measly 40 mil. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there, we, there's, a, there's a secondary part of this conversation. Well, let's yes. save it because it's one of the best moments of Truly incredible. Uh, television history. Truly incredible. And eventually what this all boils down to is that Axe, who has to stay in the game despite not being allowed to trade, that's the terms of his agreement, gets Raul to agree to allow Panea to pitch the board to invest the $2.2 billion fund in Panea's hands. Ultimately, Axe will be in control of that money. He ends up taking a huge cut of it. Raul gets a little portion of Axe's cut. And this is how he's staying in the game. He already had the $2 billion that he took from Axe Capital, that Taylor sort of gave the wink, I'm going to do what you want done here. Axe suddenly has his hand on a lot of cash. Yes. And Taylor, meanwhile... Wait, hold on. Let's just interrogate this really quickly. Yeah. Wh- why? Like, my the motivation is curious to me. Now, we know, obviously, Axe wants to win. He wants to be a, a titan of industry. But, like, this is very convoluted. And I found some of this stuff difficult to follow because it requires Panea, understanding Panea, who's a new character. Right. Raul, who's a character who's got all this history with Axe. The fusion of their stories plus Axe 
you know, who already established this $2 billion with Taylor in the last episode, now trying to build another sideline to, to manage his funds? Two reasons. One, it's his life. It's his lifeblood. He mm-hmm. has to do it. He, he cannot sit still. Two, we sort of get a more precise this point in the plot answer earlier in the episode when Axe shares his unfortunate scene of the episode with Lara Mm -hmm. and basically explains that they're actually in jeopardy of losing a lot more money than they thought. If the case doesn't go his way, the government can take almost everything they'd be left with a measly 300 mil. This was my favorite part of the episode. (laughs) Me too. By far. (laughs) Me too. When... When Lara and and Axe have to seriously consider what it would be like to live on just $300 million. What do you mean, all of it? I mean, if I take into account everything that's run through the banking systems, everything that's on the radar, all that's left that I'm sure can't be touched is 300 mil, maybe 320. Fuck, Bobby. I can't believe I'm saying this, but that just, it doesn't sound like it's enough. I mean, of course it is. It's just the life that we're used to living. Oh, it's not enough. So when it's done and life starts over, how long will it take to build back up from there? Too fucking long. An astonishing moment in television history. Both of their performances were actually wonderful. The looks on their faces were true terror. It would be as if you and I were told, you got a hundred bucks in the bank and you're at risk of overdrafting. You can only order from Postmates once a week. $300 million, Mallory. Yeah. It's a great show. (laughs) Truly incredible. But that's the reason. So he needs money that the government can't, not only can't take, doesn't know exists. Right. So it just has to be in other people's hands. This is high-level illegal funny business, though, right? This is like a a jailable offense. Sean, Bobby X Axelrod. Is a criminal. That's a true story. <laughs> That's what this show okay. is about. Right. Taylor. Axe Capital's got to keep running, even though Axe isn't there. Taylor is considering bringing a quant in. And this is like doomsday. My ego is bruised. I have no sense of self or my place in the world scenario stuff for Wags, Mafi, Ben, Everetti. Basically, everybody except Dollar Bill, who's just like sack up. What are you guys crying about? He's a king. A computer can never do what I can do. A computer can never see what Pastor Tim can see. And Taylor is testing candidates with a folding box. I want to ask you. I want you to search inside of yourself and answer honestly. Would you have admitted that you could not solve the box? It's not really in my personality. I didn't think so. Uh, I'm not good at (laughs) acknowledging when I'm wrong, nor are you. I feel comfortable saying. Uh, I think— I enjoyed how the final candidate yes. handled that. And yes. I aspire to that that approach. I am certain that I would not have admitted that I could not figure out you the box. You don't say. <laughs> Might have attempted some sort of like origami gymnastics, like inner folds of the box. You know what to... you would have done? I know you. You would have said, here's why this is a false test and the problem with this setup is X. You wouldn't have said this doesn't fit together. You would have said you guys fucked up. One of the candidates kind of tried that, yeah. though. Did not go well. Didn't go well. Did not go well. So there's a little bit of a crisis of confidence within the firm. And Wags tells Taylor, Billy Bean, you know, famed quant bringer, brought Moneyball to baseball, never won a World Series. And after a few failed interviews with a few of these candidates and sussing out why Wags, why Mafi, why all of these other people are so opposed to this kind of change in strategy, Taylor has an elaborate plan. I'm not even going to try to be Billy. I'm going to be Theo Epstein. I'm going to do it myself. Great mic drop moment near the end of the episode. Taylor almost always has a great mic drop moment. And then there's Chuck, who is just getting steamrolled throughout this entire episode by Chuck Jeffcoat, the attorney general, general, who wants him to prosecute the Jose Lugo case. Chuck has an elaborate plan that, in typical Chuck fashion, eventually goes awry, though only after he thinks he's won and outsmarted everyone. Chuck, Chuck is way. terrible. Chuck is, it's really terrible. a rough, rough Terrible at his job, yeah. emotionally bankrupt, messed up by his father. It's really underscored in this one. Never heats up the pasta he takes out of the fridge. Numerous instances, including in this episode, where he takes a Tupperware, 
of like cold globular pasta out of the fridge and just digs right in. You, I'm rubbing my head right now because you know how I feel about leftovers. I'm a hardcore anti-leftovers person. Not just the television show The Leftovers, which I wasn't a huge fan, <laughs> but the actual refrigerated food, I just don't want it. Guys, you think that Billions is a quotable show? Try working with Sean Fennessy, who once said this, I work too hard to eat leftovers. That the actual quote is, I work too hard to eat old food. <laughs> Anyhow, Chuck is disgusting. Um, nevertheless. Nevertheless. Interesting episode for him. It is. And the attorney general is not pleased with Chuck's continued disobedience, which is not hard for him to sniff out. And the attorney general, Chuck Jeffcoat, says, where I come from, if your dogs don't stop yapping, you hit them with a shock collar till they quiet up nice. While he is saying this to Chuck, he is polishing a gun and also mentioning Breitbart. Un- unbelievable interpretation of our modern society in the character of Jack Jeffcoat, even more so than I thought possible after the first two episodes. Real ripped from the headlines. Totally. Shit right there. And then Chuck is in even more trouble than he knows because Ira does take Axe up on this deal and he spills or tries to spill to Dake and Connerty. I sure as hell will testify about what Chuck Rhodes did. We get this amazing moment where we see Connerty's face. My mentor, Chuck Rhodes, what? Yeah, he's like the Zach Galifianakis numbers gif, you know? <laughs> yes. Dake's face like, oh shit, I have a few arrangements in place here. Don't fuck with my game. I'm definitely not smart or suave enough to like pull this off. And Connerty pushes, which is purposefully induce sabotage against my company, use his status and position to lure Bobby Axelrod to do it, and I will confirm on the record that Charles Rhodes Sr. was steering his own money and that Chuck's money was directly blah, 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 and then they cut him off. Dake panics. Dake stands up. Stands up. Can't, can't be a part of this conversation. Let's go. That sets Connerty off. He's starting to put the pieces together, and he cannot stomach this. He says to Dake, we're in the right and wrong game. And Connerty is one of the true idealists on this show. There's a moment in time early on in the show's run where you think Chuck is an idealist and you're quickly brought to light. Disabused about, of yes. that notion. Yes, truly. Today, we're in the take the win game, Dake says. And then Connerty punches one of the Inwood boys, gets blood all over his shirt again, stays in that shirt, much like he did after Donnie bled out all over him, stayed in that shirt. The guy died, but he was still wearing the bloody clothes. That's That moment stuck with me. And then he turns to his personal whiteboard, which we learn he has in his apartment, where he is continuing to build the axe case. What does he put on the whiteboard? A picture of Chuck and Senior. Dun, dun, dun. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ringer Merch. That's right, guys. We have exciting news for all of you Ringer heads out there. The Ringer has new merchandise with a shiny new storefront that you can check out right now, preferably right after you finish listening to this podcast. We have hats, hoodies, even an exclusive Shea Serrano disrespectful dunk t-shirt. Your friends will be low-key jealous, maybe even high-key jealous, when they see you strutting down the street with an official Ringer zip-up hoodie. Previously available only to Ringer staffers, we are now letting you, our loyal listeners, get first dibs on the goods. So go to theringer.com slash shop to pre-order your merch now. These are limited-run items and will not last long. Once they're gone, they're gone. So again, check out the ringer.com slash shop to pre-order your official Ringer merchandise today. You can also find the link to the Ringer web store in the podcast description. And now, back to Recapables. Let's get to some awards. Okay, great. Who was your MVP of this episode? A lot of candidates. I went with Ira because I feel like Ira... Great performance by Ben Shankman, as we noted, but also he just kind of flipped the trajectory of the season. You know, he tipped the scales of power, I think, truly back in Axe's favor, if only for one episode. But between that opening moment and the closing moment in the restaurant, his interplay with this blonde woman who's fascinated by him for some reason, even though he seems like an utterly average man. The reason is that he was at one time rich, and but, she assumes he will be rich again. I see. You think that that's the case, that he she's, she's betting on the future? I think there's also a chance that Ira is great in bed. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Let's not explore that. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I think I, I, I think Ira is the centrifugal force of the episode in many ways. And this kind of feels like the last time he'll be the centrifugal force of an episode. So I'm going to give a shout out to Ira. 
I'm going with Axe. Okay. And every now and then, we just have to go with one of the main figures on the show. And this really was an episode where you're, like, reminded of what kind of a master puppeteer Axe can be when he's focused. Not doing sloppy shit like he was last week when he's just in SUVs with known associates like Victor and Carly and could easily be, like, photographed. First of all, cannot overstate the significance he and Lara are divorced now, right? They signed those papers? Yes. That's what that meant? Yes. Huge win. Bravo. Bravo. Yeah, Golf Axe clap Laura. for Axe, yeah. Free of <laughs> Lara's tyranny. Converts Ira again. He says to him, your best friend sold you down the river for nothing. He's not worth saving. I'm willing to pay you $30 million to tell the truth. There are just these moments where Axe says something, you're like, this is why. This is why he's the king. Mm-hmm. This is why he can always get the perfect slice of pizza whenever he wants it and sometimes put caviar on it. He also turns into Neil Lane, as you mentioned. They are at the, how do you pronounce this fancy jewelry shop? Bucalati? I'm not familiar with that. I'm not that fancy. I am also not that fancy or that uh, into the jewelry scene in general, but I did catch the, the word mark on the diamond ring display case, and I assume that those are expensive rings. And Axe has that great flex when he's finally in the process of converting Ira, and he says, on my tab, why should she have to suffer? I wrote that down as well. Just an incredible moment. What an absolutely emasculating moment for Ira. And yet, also, he kind of wins because he gets everything that he wanted. I think on my tab, why should she have to suffer should also be the tagline for K-Jewelers. Like, all jewelers (laughs) should have that in their commercials. Axe gets Panea to service his pawn. He gets Raul to give him the police fund money, in essence, $2.2 billion. And he has another great moment where he says, this is to Panea, when he comes in with the, the Winkle Tech twins, turns, on, uh, turns off all the electronics, tells him what the actual terms of the agreement are, how much money he really has, how much money he doesn't have. He says, you've been brought back to life as promised but it's not free. And Damien Lewis does one of those trademark, like, little, like, half-mouth, like... Mouth curl. Where it looks like a straw (laughs) should be in his mouth, but there is no straw. He puckers up. It's just perfection. Just says, are you in? And also, he got Chef Ryan to replicate a delicious burger recipe. Made time to go to the Whitney to take in some culture. That's true. That's true. One more tiny MVP, Leonard Cohen. Yeah, that was a big one. I knew you were going to—I knew when you finished the episode, you were going to note the Leonard Cohen hit at the end of the episode. Beautiful. We got you on it darker. If you are the dealer, let me out of the game. If you are the healer, I'm broken and lame. If that is the glory, mine must be the shame. You want it darker. An excellent juxtaposition of lyric— and moment in the show when Ira is using the new ring that Axe gave him to propose to the the woman with the flawless skin. No pores at all, as Ira pointed out really weirdly in the middle of a botch proposal. So creepy. <laughs> when I watch you sleep. That was just really tough. And as he's proposing, the lyric, if thine is the glory, then mine must be the shame. Plays over. Just perfect. The music cues of this show, as Brian Koppelman has been told before, are fantastic. This season, from the dictators to Counting Crows, now to Leonard Cohen, the gamut is is so vast. I'm so impressed. This was was a nice stroke. And this was a fairly muted episode music-wise, too. It was. Very few overt, obvious notes. So I I really like that one. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Shout out Leonard Cohen, the late Leonard Cohen. Shout out forever. Second award. Do you have a nomination for Bill's favorite category? Most scarring scene probably ever, certainly of the week. It dovetails a little bit with a quote that I think is notable, and it's Jock Jeffcoat uttering the phrase, that walk to the outhouse made a man nut up, literally. (laughs) Which, my word. Uh, There's text and then there's subtext. And this has really got it all. Clancy Brown, as I said, is a great actor. This line is real mouthful um, and made me feel bad. Yeah, that was a special moment. I have the the preceding line that Chuck uttered uh, in my quote of the week contender, so I'll save that for okay. later. But special scene. What, did you have a scarring scene? They didn't. We weren't not that high a, on scenes like that. Not a scarring episode in part because not nearly enough sex yeah. in this episode. Yeah. No Mr. and Mrs. Martinez, which is 
unacceptable. I'm getting concerned about how long it might be until they return. Purely from a managerial perspective, I'm delighted by the first one to not have to engage with that with you. Um, <laughs> the latter, yeah. No Mrs. Martinez, what are you going to do? My nominees are, are pretty minor on the, on the scarring scale, but that truffle scene did stick with me. Watching somebody just sit there as $280 worth of truffles fall onto her plate, I, I found that unsettling in a way that is hard for me to articulate or even really understand. I had the exact opposite reaction. I was like, more, slice, <laughs> keep slicing. The way that that's filmed, the truffle shavings falling on top of the pasta, like so many snowflakes. I loved it. Just the the gluttony and indulgence that it represented. Maybe I'm just afraid of wanting to give in to a moment like that, and that's why I found it unsettling. And then I, I, I'm not sure I need to hear Mafi talk about his butt sweat again. Yeah. <laughs> Every Mephi scene is a, a treasure. It really is. But, you know, everybody's got ass sweat. We don't need to hear about it. That seemed like a slightly cheap reason to get Wendy in a scene, I think. In, a, in an episode where we just didn't need a lot of Wendy, she wasn't central except for her showdown with Chuck, which was we can get to as well. Yes. Okay, next award. Any nominations for Best New Edition and or Cameo of the Week? Not a lot of contenders for this. I, I put the Inwood Boys, Johnny Burke and Terry Burke in here because... They, Michael Stoyanov, famously the older brother from the sitcom Blossom. I don't know if that's been noted enough. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I thought it was fun to have them back, and it was fun to watch Johnny get his clock cleaned by by Connerty. I think Connerty can do better than in response to "You suckered me." No, you've been that way your entire life. That was that wasn't good. I just expect more out of my man, Brian. Connerty but Connerty's than that. kind of a dork, and it's not surprising <laughs> that he doesn't have a good comeback, even it's though true. he just knocked that dude the fuck out. Like he just didn't have the line ready. It did also seem like he had too much blood on his hand after that. Do you think he wiped it? Is he that was what he wiping did? it. Like okay. he was wiping his knuckles on his shirt. That's just all like, a metaphor, that's, though. That's just too much. Blood. As you mentioned before, Connerty be covered in blood is metaphor. It's, the proximity to Chuck is bad news for him. Full stop. Very true. I I. Guess we might as well throw the the homie Michael Panay out here, but I don't know. Yeah. I'm not very invested in him. He I'm not is, either. Does seem like he's going to be a major player. He's a he's a tool to conquest for 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 acts, and we know that. Yes. Okay. This is a, a loaded one this week. Next award, pop culture reference of the week. But this week we're going to expand it slightly to also include sports references. Oh of the boy, week. pop culture or sports? Because we got very very sports heavy episodes. So you go first. What do you want to What do you want to throw out there? I'll What's do stuck a pop out? culture one. Okay. Connerty's oh, just very passing fast reference to the movie Donnie Brasco yes. while talking to Dake, yes. where, which is referred to strictly as Brasco. Shout out to Compliment. I've heard him refer to Donnie Brasco as Brasco before. Um, and it's a very vague illusion that he makes, and it goes by quick. So that was my first one. What else? Is that what being a boss does to you? Like when Sonny Black gets up to Brasco. <laughs> That's peak billions. <laughs> Incredible <laughs> moment. And Dake's like, I don't you, you know, Dake's no like, way, I don't Dake. know, I don't watch movies. Didn't you hear Jock Jeffcoat ask me why I don't watch movies? <laughs> Dake hasn't seen The Godfather, let alone Donnie Brasco. Um, boy, there were a lot. I enjoyed when the Axe Capital crew was freaking out about the quants and everybody says the robots have come and Mafi said this is where the episode gets its name I got into this racket a generation too late just like Tony Soprano you know that angst about where you are not only in the the, the span of your own life but in the grand scheme of the world mm-hmm. and the industry in which you operate the course of society I like to think of you know Mafi really getting existential and philosophical through the lens of Tony Soprano. That felt right to me. And then immediately after that, there's a tacked-on reference where Rudy chimes in about Tommy knockers to make sure everyone remembers aliens, not robots. We also had a Wags drop when they are Wags is at Axe's beautiful apartment. No matter what Amanda Dobbins says, beautiful apartment. I like it. And we've got we got a look at the, the terrace, the outdoor space, lovely. And they're they're sampling this burger that Chef Ryan is trying to replicate this recipe, you know, to perfection to impress Raoul, to to help Axe bend Raoul to his will. And Wag says, you know, what does this thing need to taste like? Where does it need to transport Raoul to? And snack bar and the Killer Mike rap music release party. I that seemed like a bit of a stretch. <laughs> I, I'm not totally sure I see Axe and Killer Mike bonding. <laughs> <laughs> we also had during one of the Quant candidate interviews, Wags. We got an American Psycho and a Wall Street drop mm-hmm. back to back. 
this this was the second guy who was a real douchebag and Wags made a joke about him like being from the student paper and he was you know kicking his feet up on the table like couldn't button his shirt and Wags says Patrick Bateman Bud Fox wannabe and then Taylor follows up with he was doing Spader in Wall Street <laughs> <laughs> that one is good that was good. I, I, can I go a high-toned one? Please. When Wendy and Chuck are speaking in, in their home about uh, Wendy's showdown with Chuck Sr., Chuck uh, refers to his father. He references his father by saying, in Somerset Mom's stories, he's an ox, which is uh, quite a quite, quite a difficult reference, I think, to understand and encapsulate, especially when we're talking Bud Fox and Wall Street here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's that's where billions can take us. It can take us into the classroom sometimes. It's true. Always, like, just always manage to get some sort of historical or high-minded reference in there as well. Tons of sports references yeah. in this episode. We've already talked about the multiple Billy Bean references. Ira dropped a couple sports references in his delightful hot dog stand conversation with Axe, where he says, my case is the dream team versus Cuba. And that was a 136 to 57 point win. So he doesn't think this is going to be close. And then no. 30 minutes later, he's like, I'm on your team now. Imagine remembering the me. score of that game. Had to Google it, to be honest. Ira then also says, I'm going to make it my sole purpose in life to stick to you like Lester Hayes, former Raiders great. Good stuff. Mafee and Taylor, when they're talking about quants, Taylor tells him to think about the Pulaski Academy, the this team was, that never punts. Th- this, <laughs> yeah, well, we know a little bit about that. Our we previous do. employee, we, there was a short film about uh, the, the coach that never punts in the Pulaski Academy at Crowland. I found this moment concerning just in terms of Axe Capital's future, though, because Mafee trying to understand how Taylor is thinking, why Taylor is considering this change, and, and Mafee says, so it's about edge? Shouldn't Mafee know that? That's literally what they do. How'd Mafi get his job? I often wonder that. He's not really, he doesn't seem qualified, nor emotionally uh, constituted to execute this gig. We got the Wags Axe origin story. Now we need the Mafi Axe origin story. I bet you it involves WrestleMania. That's my prediction. Yeah, a return to butt sweat. <laughs> and then when Axe and Raul are playing pool, Axe says that he didn't get rich by betting against Willie Moscone. Oh, I missed that one. A little pool reference yeah. for the pool sharks I out there. I missed that one, okay. And, of course, we've already mentioned the Theo Epstein line, but the Taylor quote is really tremendous. Let's hear that. So you're not going to hire a quant? I'm not going to hire a quant. That's become clear to me. And you're correct. Billy Bean never won a World Series. But Theo Epstein did, using all the same strategies Billy came up with first. And we will, too. I accept I can't go outside to find what we need, so we're going to build our own. I'm going to oversee it. Quote of the week, as always, just... A rich text. So much. Numerous so contenders. Much good stuff here. Numerous contenders. I wrote down 10 different quotes. I'm I'm so excited. Do you want to go back and forth? Let's alternate. Rapid fire. Yeah. That's disloyal and I don't cotton to that dake. I will be saying that to the next employee that looks me in the eye and says no. Axe. When Wags is really just, you know, bearing his soul, as he does, and he's like, I, I'm worried about my future because I'm looking at your future. And what if I lose all my money too? What if I'm in that boat? And Axe, Axe turns to him and says, let's be honest, if that comes to pass, you'll be in a much smaller boat. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. Such a dick. I love it. I like when um, Chuck and Brian have their, their one real showdown in this episode, and Brian is getting a little bit persnickety about something, and Chuck says, no need to come in from your rum springer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> was just, just wonderful writing. Amazing stuff. All right, what's your next nominee? Ira discussing the... His failures, and when he says, "Should we relive my divorce on the day the music died?" Yeah, that was also very funny. I don't, I, I don't have a lot of exposition around these events. I just think that the turn of phrase around so many lines in this episode, despite it being having this density, is just really good. It's just really repeatable and really funny and clever. It's phenomenal. Uh, my next one is one we referenced earlier. The other part of that outhouse conversation where Chuck, after Jeff Coat has once again found a way to just talk about life in Texas as he does. Chuck says, people used to shit outdoors in the middle of the night so as not to stink up the house. Pause for effect. And then we found a better way. <laughs> Did we, though? Uh, let's stay on Jeff Coat. I got a whole... I got a whole... My list. next one's a Jeff Coat one, too, so this is perfect. This one's important. Might is a New Yorker's word. I don't want to hear it. This is <laughs> Jock Jeff Coat yes. to Chuck. 
and yeah. really just summing up the, the point of view of the administration he's representing as attorney general. Not interested in those East Coast liberal elites. That's right. Not interested at Stick all. Stick to Breitbart where there is no might and headlines <laughs> do not end in question marks. Uh, my Jeffco nominee here is something I learned clerking for the kind of New York judge you revere so much is you don't let your you don't let your firstborn fuck up if I can't even say this because it's so incredible. You don't let your firstborn fuck up his haftorah portion. But the way he says haftorah is like I can't even do it. First like, time he's haftorah. ever seen that word. Yeah. How does he even know the word? I don't know. He's a learned man. We know he's a learned man. He, he does identifies- have that moment where he's like, I've read books. Yeah. I went to a fancy school. I've read your books. He, I, the, one follow-up to this. This is all in the same universe of conversation between uh, Jock and Chuck. I love all my children the same, Chuck, but the Sovereign District of New York is the first among equals. That's right. That's really right. Really good stuff. A monster. A despicable monster, but boy, does he say things that sound good. My next one is a WAGS one, of course. Quote of the week could always be divided into WAGS and non-WAGS divisions. So here are a couple WAGS ones. You know that quant is just another word for wild fucking guess with math, <laughs> <laughs> which could be a tagline for the ringer.com. Love you, Ben Lindbergh. <laughs> and then in this same course of events where they're, uh, Wags is chatting with Taylor about the quant strategy, and then they are interviewing the first candidate. And this guy is trying to explain his algorithm and his approach. And <laughs> Wags just cuts him off and says— at Axe Capital, we support people from all cultures. But when you talk to me, it better be in fucking English. Great stuff. Paragon of, <laughs> of HR responsibility, wags. I have— um, Doesn't like math. I think we, ha- we have to cite Billy B. Never won a World Series. Obviously, that's a— Incredible. It's u- used twice here. Piss, for, piss poor effort Ryan, I also noted earlier. <laughs> wags to the chef after uh, his failed burger experiment that also actually sounded wonderful. It looked delicious. Yeah. And I just love— Axe's commitment to always saying Chef Ryan. Never Mm -hmm. just Chef. Never just Ryan. Chef Ryan. This sign of respect, eternal respect for a man once caught receiving a blowjob in the Axelrod backyard. (laughs) I forgot about that. I did not. (laughs) Wow, Chef Ryan's come a long way. Uh, A few more. I'm sorry it'll have to wait. I drove the Maserati tonight. It won't fit. Wendy's mic drop on Chuck Sr. That's my last one. It is the line of the episode, an episode that is tragically light on Wendy, but that was phenomenal. All Sr. wants is those trophies out of his home, those reminders of how his son has disappointed him out of his home. Won't fit. My fancy, super expensive sports car that the guy you hate bought me. So good. Too small. The line that precedes that, I thought, was also very well written which is your son is the man you made him. Whatever greatness and whatever darkness is in him is because of you. Wendy's insightful. She really is. Another one from that exchange from Charles Sr. Why would I ever give a shit about third place squash trophy from prep school? If he'd won, maybe I'd put it on the mantle. And Charles Sr. wonders why this happened with his son. Wonderful performance by Jeffrey Demune. Uh, This is my last one. It's from Ira. And I think it is the theme of the episode. It's Ira to Axe. It's slightly paraphrased. This is just a transaction to you. Your emotions are smoothed out like ice under a Zamboni. Could have been another sports reference, I guess. Could have been. And Axe was like, I know how to make a deal and I know what's fair. He was I'm, like, I, I will lo- not be living on $300 million, sir. <laughs> I, I loved that return line from him. I know what's fair. He actually means that. He has his own moral complexity, his own universe, his own set of ethics and principles that he follows. That's another key difference between Axe and Chuck that is is becoming increasingly clear. Axe actually does believe his own bullshit. Chuck isn't sure anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, that moment last week in episode two, that was not an accident when Chuck and Funt are chatting in the bowels of the hall. And Chuck says, I really do think I mean it. I really Mm -hmm. do think I'm sorry. And he you can just see the doubt. And it's not an, uh, an emotion he's used to experience. It's, not, it's a foreign sensation for him. Axe doesn't deal with doubt. Axe doesn't allow himself to acknowledge that doubt exists. And that's why Axe is going to win. Axe is a wolf and Chuck is a fox. This is how we have to think of these two characters. Wow. I love wolves. Dire wolves in particular. Protect Axe. <laughs> All right. Loser of the week. We always mention, out of tradition, Lyra who loses every episode that she appears in. Extremely tough look for Lara, brief though it was. Just embarrassing herself by acting like she can't live on $300 million. That was 
shameful, but also wonderful. Also, you're going to, if you're worried about living on $300 million, you're going to have to adjust your uh, attitude about Birch's sardine can of an airplane. You might just have to get in it. I, I have a couple of other candidates for this one. Me too. Primarily Sacker, whom I love, Condola Rashad. I, I really, I wish there was a whole other show that was just about Sacker. She breaks in this episode. We see that she kind of has to lean into the way that Chuck has been managing his moral universe, the way that he's been bending what he's willing to do. And she's going to have to do it, too, to get ahead and to succeed here. And it's kind of sad to watch her negotiate potentially prosecuting an innocent person. It is sad, though it was also one of the moments where I thought this is actually why she is maybe going to thrive in a way that Connerty is incapable of doing. Like she actually is, and it was a slightly on-the-nose acknowledgement of that, but she is actually cut out for playing the game. She is actually willing to compromise her own moral integrity and do what is necessary, but not in a Dakian way, not in a way where you're like, this guy has no idea what he's gotten himself into, is not comfortable with it, and is not going to be capable of executing it flawlessly. You look at Sacker and you're like, she's going to get this done. It's gross, but she's going to get it done. She shut off her emotions completely. One of my losers of the week is, I hate to say this, it hurts me, the Wags Axe origin story. Not what I wanted. I agree. It wasn't that strong. It was a chance meeting with Axe in a golf outing wherein he read my tarot cards for me. And we just, we learned basically that Wags was at Lehman. Things were going poorly. All these kids, these smart whippersnappers had taken over. He didn't understand what they were doing. So how could he ask questions? How could he compete? Companies losing money, his fortune's in jeopardy. And Axe pulls him out just in time, you know, tells him, get out of there while you can. Axe's warning allowed me to save my ass before it was too late. I wanted something truly ludicrous. You wanted body sushi. I wanted I wanted to learn that the tomatoes that Bruno insists on using in the pizza that Axe loves so much were somehow involved, a sliced onto the body sushi that Wags consumed so much he's built up a tolerance, or that maybe he used those very tomatoes to pelt an umpire, and that's how he got banned from Little League. Like, I wanted it to be something like that. The thing that I would like to hear now is... Axe's version of that story. Why Wags? How does Wags become the commandant? How does he become number two? Because that's what's most interesting here. It's not because we know Wags idolizes Axe in a way that is almost irrational. But there, the the reason that Axe has stuck so closely to Wags, who is by all accounts um, an amoral uh, windbag, very entertaining, but just just. Just, just full of shit, and 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 also does not control himself. I just like everyone listening to know that um, a mere forty minutes ago in studio off mic, I told Sean I thought I was the wags of the ringer. That's and this all, is apparently apparently what he thinks of me. True, so. <laughs> though you don't. You, your moral constitution does not reflect on wags. It's only your killer instinct. Thank you, thank you. and my um, mustache. <laughs> No comment. My love for Michter's, perhaps Michter's celebration. We all share that here yeah. at the ringer. That could have been an origin story too. They both love Michter's. Yep. Maybe they were. They both had their eye on the last bottle of a, a 20-year-old sour mash, hard to come by. Who would win it? What if we shared it? And then what if we shared our lives? I don't think we're done hearing origin stories between Axe and Wax. We'll get more. My, my biggest loser of the episode is, is Chuck, as we've, as we've sort of hinted at. Very tough look for Chuck this week. First of all, he displayed some blatant and highly puzzling hypocrisy when Jeff Coat is first trying to, like, maneuver him into pursuing this Lugo case and honoring the, the desires of the regime. And Chuck says, I never liked the idea of a regime in power in this country. That's just not true. Chuck's entire identity is built around the idea of being at the center of the regime, of building the regime, of making sure that he is positioned perfectly inside of it so that he can control it. And again, it was just a moment where I'm like, he doesn't even understand his own intent anymore. He doesn't, he's lost sight of his own code and his own philosophy. And you can't try to do the things he's doing if you don't even understand what you're after or what you believe in anymore. He got totally played by Jeff Code on the Lugo case. He whiffed with the warden. He whiffed with the journal article play. Ira turned on him, so he not only lost that friendship, but he lost that agreement. He doesn't know it yet, but he's lost Connerty, which is huge. One of the only, like, truly loyal defenders that he had left in the district, Eastern and Southern now, but be that as it may. His dad was mocking his squash finish. Very tough. Extremely tough look. 
I'm also like he's supposed to be mounting this gubernatorial campaign, but he is instead of focusing on that in any meaningful way, going to build secret cases with Sacker in a basically broom broom closet. Yeah, give it all the time we spent with George last season. I I feel like it's strange that we haven't gone forward too much with the gubernatorial story. Now, maybe this will represent the back half of this season a little bit more aggressively, but I, I find it weird that we're not thinking about that. That we're more caught up in sort of the 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 those moral complexities and all of his relationships right now. Yeah, and then the advice he gets from Wendy in that conversation after Wendy was with Senior is. I've yet to meet the man you can't outmaneuver. Find your angle. I'm not sure that's the advice that Chuck needs right now. I think he needs to hear, sit this one out for a change. Don't try to go against the attorney general, especially because you're not doing it because it's what you think is right. You're doing it because you don't want to get beaten. Just doesn't want to lose. That's what it is. That's exactly what it is. I think uh, you're you're right that he's a loser, but he does have Wendy, which is pretty huge and something <laughs> he didn't have. It's huge for me, frankly. Um, <laughs> and... I'm not betting against Chuck. That's where I'm at. All right. Never keep him down for long, I guess. Mr. Martinez will rise eventually. I mean that euphemistically. It was a boner joke. I got the joke. I'm trying to maintain some professionalism (laughs) over here. Very, very, very brief look ahead for next week. What are you hoping for? What are you expecting? Mm, I think Chuck has to have a bounce back. Mm -hmm. I think... Is a bounce back a technique that he learned from his mistress? Potentially, Yeah. yeah. I'm very curious to see how they continue the Taylor rise to power. Yes. Um, Taylor's going to have to make some choices now in this next episode. And it's unclear to me how they will continue to allow that to develop. And I wonder if long term the the plan here is for Taylor and Axe eventually to become hardcore adversaries and for this to be more of a tripartite uh, war rather than just this mano a mano situation we have. Oh, I really hope not. I think, I think it's that, plausible. I think you're right that it's plausible. I also think that the single best thing on the show right now is Taylor Axe scenes. Mm-hmm. Though I guess you could have that if they were enemies. I mean, t- Axe Chuck showdowns are often the most crackling electric bits of writing on the show. Picture this. Axe goes too far and Wags abandons Axe for Taylor. Never. You never know. Wags is... I, Maybe I, that's why I, that I origin story you, was so weak. I refer you back to Wags's birthday toast to Axe for the only true instance of pure love I've ever seen in the world. Okay, let's go back to my metaphor. If Axe is a wolf and Chuck is a fox, Wags is a weasel. Weasel's no loyalty. I think Wags is a... Wags is the forest. (laughs) Providing shelter, shelter, warmth, security. Uh, my my questions for next week. When is Wendy getting a major episode? I think we've been way too light on Wendy so far. She's been like an accessory in scenes. She needs to be a main player again. When, 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 when are we getting John Malkovich's Grigor Andalov? God, I was so hoping to be to be filling in for the Malkovich episode. It's got to be coming. Ugh. It has got to be coming. And I'm, I am genuinely curious to see how Connerty goes after Chuck. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to that. I think that could play out well over the course of the season. All right, guys. That's all we have for today. Thank you for joining us for The Recapables Billions. Please be sure to check out The Recapables on Atlanta as well. That will hit your feeds every Friday morning for the rest of the Atlanta Season 2 run. Sean, thank you for being here with me. And one day, I hope to share some Victor celebration with you. Maybe right now. Before we go, we wanted to thank our friends at songfinch.com for our theme song. Check out Songfinch to turn your stories, memories, and feelings into a one-of-a-kind song by professional musicians. It makes the perfect gift for any occasion. songfinch.com. 